0: Our teacher this morning is uh, Dr. Tom Woodward of uh, Clearwater, Florida. Um, He's a graduate of um, Princeton University, where he came to Christ. Uh, He also has a Master of Theology, which he received in systematic theology from Dallas Seminary, and he also has um, a degree in communications from the University of Southern Florida. Dr. Woodward is also president of the C.S. Lewis Foundation, which is presently um, situated in in Florida. And it's involved, its ministry is for teaching and defending the Christian truth. He's also an author and a co-author of a a number of books. And one of them is called um, Doubts About Darwin, A History of Intelligent Design. And uh, so he's done a lot of research on these things. And so he's out there uh, talking a lot. And so he was here this this weekend with Telios uh, in in our apologetics seminar. And some of us were were able to take some of the sessions in and thoroughly enjoyed his presentation. We also have have his wife, um, Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Normandy Woodward. And uh, she has a ministry to children uh, ages five through 12, primarily. And yesterday I learned a couple of things that reptiles, or not that reptiles, but the dinosaurs do not do. And uh, you can always ask me about that. Okay, Dr. Woodward, um, you're
1: on. Thank you. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to be in this uh, wonderful setting with brothers and sisters in Christ who love the Lord and who love learning the truth about the Lord. Amen? And that's what uh, church is all about, growing together, maturing, uh, egging one other to spiritual life at a higher level, and then sharing that, si- that same fantastic message that brought us to faith, sharing that with others, uh, both here, of course, uh, to visitors and in the big world outside of us here in the Bahamas and beyond. Uh, I have enjoyed two brief visits to the uh, Bahamas before, and this is just fantastic. It is awesome in that overused word of today. It is just great to be with you, and thank you for allowing me the opportunity to share something that's on my heart and a little bit in my head, too. It's a message about God, question mark, Christianity, question mark, and then, of course, where does the evidence point? Now, the reason I put the question mark instead of an exclamation mark is that today, if you go to any in the United States, in Europe, uh, for example, we were in Japan just about, uh, what, four months ago in the middle, end of May. And as we went around that country, 99% of the people of Japan either do not believe in God or if they believe in God, it's another God. 1%, roughly 1% of Japan is Christian. Now, I know that the gospel is spreading like wildfire in many parts of Asia It has already been for about 60 or 70 years spreading very well in Korea. Uh, China is now into the the gospel explosion. Uh, The Philippines, even Indonesia has had a tremendous turning. But Japan is like a, a microcosm of Eastern Europe, but with its own unique culture. And in Japan, I found myself having to make a case in a general public setting for God, and then specifically, okay, so maybe there's a God, has he made himself known? And then I would move into the evidence for Christ. So those are kind of the two, you might think of general stage one, the evidence for God, more specific stage two, the case for Christ. And I think the Lord would have us know, even though that's rather different, right? Radically different from the Bahamas. I think from what I've heard, 90%, maybe 98% believe in God. And a lot of those, the majority of those, would have some Christian flavor or background. Now, I don't know. I haven't seen a figure of how many in the Bahamas uh, genuinely have a heart relationship with Jesus Christ, but I would imagine it's pretty high compared to other countries. Anybody heard a percentage? 10%? Estimate evangelical? Is it higher than that? Do I go higher? Do I go lower? Higher? 20%? Higher? 20%? Higher? Higher? 30%? Am I getting close? Okay, I'm about there? Okay. That's, that's fantastic. I mean, and that almost matches Guatemala, I think, is the other most evangelized country. Jamaica, actually, uh, is, is up there in terms of the percentage of evangelical. But what I would like to talk about is Specifically, how we, when we go onto a university campus, whether it be in the United States, in Europe, in Asia, or in a general public group, how we try to establish the case for there being a God in the first place. Uh, I'm going to be talking in my a message and in, in the sermon, in the main service. I'm going to be talking more about Christ, okay? The evidence for Christ, but also how Christ is the light of the world at every level. No, he is the light of the world, and then he calls you and me to be the light of the world. Isn't that cool? That's a bit scary. Here, I'm passing the torch to you. We're going to be talking about that. So where does the evidence point is really kind of the, the theme of this talk, and also it's the, the theme of our ministry, the C.S. Lewis Society. Some people may wonder, what is that lamppost doing up there? But if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, I'll bet you know why that's there. It's, yeah, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, lantern waste. And we see the light there shining in that lantern as, they, as Lucy enters Narnia. That is the light of Christ. It's going to be talking about today. And then you see the lamppost has a kind of a cross built into it. And then the, the, the flames of the Holy Spirit are looped together like DNA loops together. Woo! Yeah, let's go ahead and do our demo. Thank you, brother. Okay, and you can hold it right in the middle there. Good, 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 good. So DNA normally loops up something like this. Very, 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 it's amazing how tight the spirals are. But when the time comes for DNA to be read, to be duplicated, uh, a machine comes in and opens it up. Okay, like that, and one side is read and turned into a, a copy which looks like this, but then it peels away and then just like a zipper can open and close mm. It comes back together. I didn't do it very well at that time, but Ron you did fantastic. So um, It is Ron. Yes. Okay. Okay, so let's thank Ron for being my DNA manipulator uh, Thank you so much brother um, so DNA I'll just say is a little bit of a Specialty of our ministry. It's my one of my specialties because I started 28 years ago focusing on this, and I contacted a guy who was studying the origin of DNA, who wrote a book on DNA. His name is Charles Thaxton. Uh, he's right now in his upper 70s, I think, um, still going strong. And so I contacted him and said, "I said this is fantastic. I said your book." doesn't mention Christ, but it's all about the power of God in Christ. He says that's the whole point of the book, is to reach into secular areas and shake them up because the evidence does not point to DNA coming from a batch of chemicals swirling and mixing and getting hit by lightning. It has too much carefully woven digital computer-like information embedded along that that little thread-like molecule to ever come, no matter how many lightning crashes and how many puddles, you know, Uh, that you'll ever see. So uh, I'm going to just suggest that DNA is one of the key witnesses for Jesus, the Logos, who made the world, who made all the plants and animals, who made each one of us with your unique stamp of identity in the digital array of DNA. Isn't that cool? I mean, how God made you special. And instead of just 20 pairs of letters and we use color code, color scheme Uh, red and green, and then orange and blue. Instead of just 20 letters in each of your cells, you'd have to extend this out 100 million times for one cell. That's just one cell. Yeah, actually a little bit more than that, but uh, I'm getting close. And then you have that 3.1 gigabyte, three billion letters, three billion rungs in the ladder in just one cell. Now you multiply that times 60 trillion and you have a human body. Of course, you have to add the rest of the cell beyond the DNA. So you are amazing. You guys are complex, each one of your bodies beyond imagination. And that is a witness to God. I'm getting ahead of myself a bit, but I just want to mention that's a little bit of our background and uh, one of our focus points. Apologetics.org is our website if you want to visit that. I think you'd um, you know, find some interesting features and articles we have some videos embedded, just go down to the video link and you can see testimonies of Princeton University professors who came to Christ and they share their testimony. So they, even with all their brilliance and their academic achievement, they do not see the Bible as colliding you know, with what they're learning, the academic high level you know, area that they specialize in, but actually they weave it together. It's a beautiful testimony from each of those five gentlemen. And then we have a lecture by Edwin Yamauchi, famous historian on the evidence for the resurrection of Christ, right there on our website. Hope you enjoy that. It's available day and night. So our goal, our goal in our ministry, and some of you who were here yesterday, remember I talked about the Mano del Desierto, you know, out in the desert of Chile, there's a strange thing, it's clearly a hand just jutting out of the sand, out in the middle of nowhere. So some crazy, creative sculptor wanted to sculpt a hand. <laughs> and if you go by, if you drive by the desert, uh, you can say, wow, that's a hand. What's it doing sticking out of, the, out of the sand? But you recognize design when you see it. And then I mentioned the Hungarian parliament. There it is. Isn't that a beautiful building? Yeah, it's pretty impressive. We had the privilege on a mission trip to, to go visit, and that's the Danube River that cuts right through the, the capital city of Budapest. And that building is a marvel of ingenuity, design, creativity. You know that that didn't result from sand and wind and water erosion on some cliff whipping things together, right? No, you can see the, the, the fingerprints of intelligent design all over it. And we believe that the new movement that's arisen in the last 30 years, it's 30 years old this, this year, uh, has a great natural connection The human heart and the human mind recognize design when you see it. But our goal then is to speak the truth boldly in even hostile situations. On my three mission trips, I've been able to go to uh, Hungary and speak there, Uh, two of them in universities. I found um, not so much active, angry hostility, but opposition to what I was saying as a Christian, because many of the leadership of the academic community are non-Christians. Matter of fact, they're out-and-out atheists. So uh, I will be uh, sharing a little bit more in the morning service about an encounter I had with uh, Mbe Ishtin Antal. That's uh, where I appeared. Obviously I'm a little bit younger there. Uh, and so in the uh, early 90s I had an opportunity to speak and visit the university uh, in downtown Budapest and he came and visited and I'll tell you the whole story in the in the service. That's the actual Visit and then this is when I and then I lost contact. And my wife and I tried and tried, and we finally went to one museum. He said, Oh, he works at this other place. I said, Oh, wow. And so we took a taxi, and so we had a little reunion about 15 years later. And we posed in the same position, and there we are as we kind of met up. So, yeah, uh, he hasn't aged much, I've aged a little bit. (laughs) <laughs> but I'm sorry, but this uh, gentleman, a geologist, has a fantastic testimony of God working in his life. So I'll tell you a little bit more about that in the service. We have had an opportunity to go to uh, countries where there was such hostility that they canceled our talks. This is in Barcelona, Spain. Now, Barcelona... You know, probably after Madrid, the most famous city in, in Spain, is not known to be, a, at least historically a hostile or atheist place. But the universities again, what I'm trying to say is the university is where the leadership of tomorrow is being trained, and they are often, at least the, the more outspoken uh, scientists and even social scientists, people in the social scientists, the liberal arts, will often be targeting Christianity in a way that says you could X that off your list. So we had a a five-city tour. uh, Santiago Esquain is standing up on the right. That's me, obviously, on the left. And the two other gentlemen are speakers or organizers. And what we did is we had a five-city tour. We actually published it all over the the papers of Spain. And I can tell you the whole story in detail, but uh, I'll just mention that just a week before we left, the Darwin promoters of Spain were so hostile about our talks, advertised talks, what Darwin didn't know, that they, they blitzed the, the deans of the universities where we were scheduled with angry, you know, hateful, snarly, snappy emails saying, how dare you open your, your doors to these ludicrous, you know, crazy people from the United States who will ruin Spanish science. I didn't know I was that dangerous. I'm really a wicked man. <laughs> and so they said, we demand that you cancel this. And guess what? All three universities, bloop, 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 within a day or two canceled. We're sorry, we have to withdraw our invitation. So, and pretty soon the press, the Spanish press picked up on this. They, they sniffed a story. <laughs> so then they jumped in it. We were headline news all over Spain. Madrid Daily, Barcelona, other uh, Vigo, uh, Leon, And pretty soon, the networks were talking about us. And there were debates back and forth in the paper. Should the Americans be allowed to come? Should they be shut out? And there were arguments on both sides. And pretty soon, I never thought it would be national news just by coming to give a talk on DNA, how it points to God. So, but pretty soon, when we opened up our our initial lectures, and we had some substitute places, but all all the universities remained shut down to us. I had five TV networks come or stations come and interview me on the opening night talk. That's one of them right there. And I was able to take some of our DNA and protein models, and these and these cameramen were going like this. They go, and so they would show me, and then they would show the model of the camera swooping along the DNA chain or the protein chain. It was so funny when I watched it. We were the uh, they have a, like a Today Show, and uh, the guy who headed up this whole effort and the head of the Evolutionary Biology Society, were debating on their Today Show. I went on a radio program while I was there in Madrid, uh, run by the Catholic Network, and we were able to talk about evidence for design in the cell. When I left, they, I said, this has pretty good listenership. They said, there were about a million, million and a half people listening to you just now. And so the, and so what Satan tried to do in shutting us down led to an explosion of awareness. God had the final answer. <laughs> Amen. So. Um, we find that this area of evidence for design is controversial, but it's undeniable. Just look at that gorgeous nebula in our galaxy. I don't know to what extent it really looks like a cat's eye. I've never really studied the eye of a cat. I know there are a number of cats in the Bahamas, okay? Uh, Maybe you own one. But that cat's eye nebula, isn't it gorgeous? It says God is weaving these structures of beauty and intricate design throughout the universe. Galaxies fascinate me. And that's what's called a barred spiral. It's kind of an oblong that has, you see the bar that goes from lower left to upper right? And barred spirals are a miracle. The organization of these spiral galaxies is fascinating to study. And again, points to a wise designer. Comb jellies, you ever heard of a comb jelly? You know, they're fantastic. They radiate the rainbow colors as they swim through the waters, they're not comb fish jellyfish, but comb jellies are amazing. And, and what they've discovered recently is that modern-day comb jellies, if you trace back the timeline, to this place called the Cambrian. Is anybody heard of the Cambrian before? I was talking about it. the Cambrian explosion has structures of comb jellies that haven't changed in whether you accept their dates or not. You know that, that's an independent question, but 500 million years, the very first comb jellies. Look like modern-day comb jelly swimming in the waters right off the Bahamas. Is that evolution? No. That's stability. That's non-change. That's resistance to change. We call it stasis. And so, uh, as you study these things of nature, God is sending out message. He's sending out a bulletin. He's sending out a wake-up call. And I'd like to just include you. I'd like to, if you will, delegate to each one of you deputize. Have you ever heard that old phrase? Uh, I want to be a deputy. Okay, I'm going to deputize you. So you put a badge on somebody, and you're now a, a deputy, as we might say back in the U.S. So I'd like to make you fellow apologists, defenders, witnesses of the glory of Christ. There is in DNA, as I said earlier, a special unique witness, because it's one of three informational macromolecules. Now, this is a phrase I'm going to teach you. Okay, so a macromolecule Think of a spaghetti, a piece of pasta, that goes from here all the way to the other end of, of the island. Okay. If you're in New York City and you have, to have a pasta that goes to Miami, is that a long pasta? Yeah. That's pretty long. Well over, well, a thousand, no, more than a thousand miles, probably 1,200, 1,500 miles. Maybe not that long, but a long. Okay, now, that would be an interesting pasta. That's what we call... Macro molecule, a long string molecule. Everybody got that? Macro means big. Okay. Now, if you had a pasta string that goes from, let's say, downtown Miami to the Empire State Building, that's amazing. But what if you saw a string of letters along it that spelled out the U.S. Constitution, then the Bahamian Constitution, and probably much better than the U.S. Constitution, and then has the, the a short history of, let's say, the island. This is New Providence. Okay. And then, and then maybe, you know, a couple, uh, I don't know, Beatles songs, the lyrics, your favorite songs uh, of the 1960s. And then, and then there'll be a, the, the New York phone book, and then there'll be something else, right? Information spelled along that pasta strip. Now what we have is an information bearing that is a code, a, a series of letters, organized just perfectly to make sense, and it's a long pasta still. Now you have the picture of an informational macromolecule. There are three of these. There's the DNA, and then there's the copy of DNA that just looks like this. It's a half a letter, half a ladder. And that copy peels off and goes outside the cell, and then that goes through a tunnel in a, in a construction machine, and it produces a, another chain called a protein. You've heard of proteins. There's a lot of proteins in meat, right? For proteins and beans, eat a lot of protein, good for you. So proteins are long-string molecules, not super long. Some of them can be a little bit long, and they have information. And each of these three kinds of molecules point to a designer. Listen listen carefully, this may be the most important lesson I, I share today. There is no power in nature that can put together a long string of letters. No power in nature that can organize in precise sequence a long string of letters. But an intelligence, an intelligent writer of that code can do it easily, correct? Yeah. I have a granddaughter who said, at the age of two and a half, a complete sentence, and I wrote it down, and I said, that's so cool. She's only two and a half, and she's already doing informational micromolecules, okay? And then you just extend it longer, and you have a macro. Okay, so let's just put on our uh, uh, seatbelts and take a look at some of the evidences that God has arrayed in front of us. First of all, a quick glance at God's organizing the truth of creation up in, as it were, the highest level, and that is scripture, okay? Zechariah 12, 1 is a fantastic and overlooked uh, power scripture. It's a power scripture. It's a truth organizer, and I would encourage you to study this passage and learn it. The Lord is speaking, this is at the beginning of a very important prophecy. And he begins the prophecy by telling them who is speaking, who knows the truth of the future. The Lord is speaking, who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth, and who forms the spirit of man within him. Wow. Three levels of creation, right? Stretches out the heavens. He creates the the big picture, the arena. And then he lays the foundation of the earth. Now we're getting closer to home. He's the head of The Department of Astronomy. He's also the creator and head of the Department of Geology. Now we're down to rocks. And who forms the spirit of man within him. That's the most intimate, interior, and mysterious part of mankind. Your consciousness is a mystery to this day to science. Science cannot get its hands on and understand how consciousness works. That's God's mystery. You can study molecules and synapses, you know, nerve tissue, all you want. God says the soul is something that even exists without a body. It's integrated with a body and in a proper format, but apart from the body, it still lives on. That is fantastic. How do you explain that? So this Zechariah 12, 1 passage has become like the cornerstone of my teaching about creation. I encourage you again to to fall in love. There's a lot of great passages in the Old and New Testament on creation. Let me just show you another one. Paul goes to Harvard University. Well, not quite, but close to it. Okay, now there was no Harvard back then. Harvard was uh, founded, I looked it up this morning, 1636. Shortly after the Puritans came, John Harvard, I think, uh, endowed it. But anyway, Harvard University means the pinnacle, along with what, Oxford and Cambridge and a few other schools, of excellence, right, in learning. Paul went to the Harvard University of his day. Can anybody guess what city that was in? Athens, Athens. That's where the philosophers hung out. Still, even 300 years after Plato and Aristotle had faded from the scene. And this is what he says. By the way, the Stoics, the group of philosophers, and the Epicureans, those were the Darwinists of Paul's day. So there is no God. Don't worry. When you die, that's the end of it. There's no judgment. Okay. So the Epicureans and the Stoics, those two philosophers were saying, what are you saying, Paul? As they were listening to him, they actually thought he was preaching two gods. Jesus, and another God called Anastasis. That's the word that means resurrection. So Paul was emphasizing the resurrection of Christ so much that they got confused. They thought he was talking about two deities. Paul said, no, 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 that's not what I'm saying. No. And they said, well, come on, come over here, come to the Mars Hill, Areopagus, this little promontory, kind of rock outcrop by the, uh, by the uh, Parthenon and you know, the, the whole uh, Mars Hill area there. So give us your best shot. Tell us what you're saying so we know what clearly is your main idea and what we're supposed to do about it. And so this is what Paul says. This is part of his famous Acts 17 speech. So let me just read it here. The God, he's telling the philosophers, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because notice he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Wow, this is quite a God. Amazing. And then Paul says this from one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. So God is the creator of all mankind from one man, Adam. Of course, Eve was part of the duo. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Wow. God is close to you. He's so close, you can reach out and touch him. But God calls upon men to seek him, and it says, and reach out for him. So God is reaching to you, and he says, turn around from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ. By the way, Jesus Christ is mentioned in this sermon right at that same time. And he talks about Christ has been appointed as judge of all the living and the dead. And how did God show that Christ would be the judge? If you know Acts 17, you know the answer to that question. By raising him from the dead. God said, I'm going to take one man, and it's basically, it's my eternal son, become man, and I'm going to raise him from the dead, and that marks him as the judge of all mankind. Whoa. And so in this fantastic passage, Paul is taking on the Harvard scholars of his day, the the top flight University of Bahamas, that's the leading university, the most prestigious. Do I have it right? Okay. And, uh, and I'm, sure it's, I'm sure it's right up there close to Harvard. You know, it's such a great, great country. So blessed to be here. So uh, all the university scholars of the Bahamas and you know, the United States and all the, the, the countries of the world, the most elite and advanced countries, massed together would be like the Athens of Paul's day. And God delivers the message straight to their heart, and it's the message of creation. God is not just the creator of mankind, he's even the creator of geopolitics. He's the creator of boundaries, of borders between lands, and that he has mapped out history to maximize his glory and the salvation effect of of people into the lives of people. I mean, it's awesome what God is saying through Paul here. And so I want to just commend to you, again, the study of Zechariah 12, Acts 17 and about 35 other passages which I'd be glad to send you if you would like to uh, write me uh, a note through apologetics.org. Now Darwin comes along in 1859 and and the universe of universities, the whole world of universities and colleges as they existed then, were pro-Christ, at least on paper, at least in theory, pro-creation. And then that whole thing turns in about one decade in 1859. This is actually 1835, uh, and um, Darwin is saying, I think. You see the words up there in this little note? I think, and then he has a branching diagram. That's actually, uh, I'll take that back. It's about 1841, 42. This is in one of his notebooks. And then when he published his book, the I think diagram became an actual diagram of how life could have evolved from a single source. And that's the only graphic in this entire book, Origin of Species. But that insight really was not his insight. People had been thinking about the tree of life to explain life without a God, without a creator for, for decades. His own grandfather, Erasmus, wrote a little poem. Actually, it wasn't little, it was about 50 pages long, in which he imagined how things could have morphed and changed and that was picking up the ideas of the Epicureans, the ones that Paul t- talked to uh, in the time there in the first century. So Paul had this idea of natural selection, as the engine and that creates all this stuff. But then after a hundred and let's say 1859 to 120 years, then the theory of Darwin's um, gradualistic nature-driven evolution of everything begins to fall apart. And I would mark that 30 years ago in in England and then a year later, this uh, same book comes out, Evolution of Theory and Crisis. And Michael Denton, who's not a Christian, is an agnostic, writes this at the end of his book. The evolution theory of evolution is neither more nor less than the great cosmogenic, which means creation, okay? It's known more nor less than the great creation myth of the 20th century. You think that's a bit controversial for a scientist to write that? Very controversial. This book provoked an absolute outrage and uproar across the scientific world. And they kept looking. He said, well, this guy must be a Christian. He must have a, an axe to grind. You know, he must have a, a bias. And they couldn't find it because he didn't even believe in God. As a matter of fact, he dismisses Genesis. But at the same time, he spends the whole book dismissing the theory of evolution, saying it doesn't work when you look at it carefully. You see why this is, has the potential for starting a new era? And not only does it have the potential, it did. This and other things ignited a whole new era of, you might say, quiet, articulate protest or dissent against the macro theory of evolution, saying either we need a new theory, that's what an agnostic, that's what he says at the end of the book. We're back, we're back at square one. We don't have any idea how things evolve. Or if you're open to a God concept, you can say, wow, God is showing his stuff. You see, the Lord is, is displaying his greatness. He analyzed not one, not two, but 12 different lines of evidence in his book unbelievable what God did. Now, by the way, Michael Denton isn't over. He's going to come out with another book next year. I just heard this. Normally, I haven't even told you. I just heard from John West within the last couple days. He says, and his new book is going to be called, are you ready for this? Evolution, a theory that is still in crisis. I think that's kind of cute. He's going to update the old book. Okay. So intelligent design, what does it do? It studies the patterns in nature that are best explained by intelligent agent. Now, we do have some patterns in nature that look designed, but we know they probably were not. You ever heard of the man in the mountain? Okay, New Hampshire. Now, tragically, the old man collapsed about a little over 10 years ago. But before he collapsed, that's the profile. Matter of fact, it's still on the license plate. If you're in New Hampshire, you know, the license plate has man in the mountain, profile, maybe it should go show the, the revised, there's nothing there anymore, but, but it looked like a head, right, a nose, you see the little uh, mouth, and then kind of the chin jutting out. Now, what they, when they analyzed it, and, and if you come around 90 degrees this way, it doesn't even look like anything, but so just from one angle, it sort of looked like a profile, and so the indentations, like where the mouth is, and the eyes, and then under the chin, that's where soft rock layers were. And the parts that are jutting out, that's where the harder rock. So that could be explained by erosion, right? Wind and water weather, weathering, okay? And so you don't have to have a theory that, you know, Indians crept up at night oh, every, every couple days and would chisel a bit more and then they hide out during the day. <laughs> no, you don't need a, an Indian theory. Erosion will handle it. No intelligence was involved. Okay, so some things look designed but are not. Other things are clearly designed. Think of these four men in the mountain. Can erosion, random acts of erosion explain Mount Rushmore? Not likely. (laughs) Why? Too much, what's that? Too much detail, right? Too much exact pixel by pixel. Wow, that looks exactly like Washington, Jefferson, Teddy Roosevelt my goodness, I was like, hey, Abraham Lincoln, guess what? It is created by a crazy sculptor over a period of what, 15, 20 years with chisels and some little blast uh, micro, he stuck some dynamite or something like that in there. And he kept working, working, and finally the result is, you know, the rest is history. People, thousands of people, hundreds of thousands have come by and through the years and gazed at that great achievement. So you can see truly designed Because the exact pattern and the low probability that that random erosion would ever do that and just looking like design, nature can do right, nature cannot do the left, intelligent design is on the left, boom, proven. Now what I just did is I did a design inference. I showed you now how intelligent design theory works. I hope that helps. Okay? It's just analyzing the evidence. I didn't have to pull up a, a holy book. Now you know I love the holy book, I love the Bible. Bible speak is where God speaks to our heart, our life, our everything. But intelligent design is really cool because you can just leave the Bible there and just show the, the agnostic or the evolutionist, there's evidence, scientific evidence. Uh, sometimes we've gone to places where there was a hostility to the evidence and just a plain ignorance of what intelligent design is. This is University of La Sapienza in Rome, And this is where we saw, at least uh, as my wife sat up in the bleachers and seeing a standing room only event, this was, I was told, the first time that Darwin's theory had been challenged, this debate. Uh, And you can see at the lower left-hand side is Professor Boncinelli. He is the head of the Evolutionary Biology Society of all of Italy. Over here, you can see me and and the organizer on the left of me, and then to the right of me is the translator, who was struggling a bit, but anyway. Uh, Boncinelli hadn't even read up on the theory of intelligent design. I'm not trying to say this is necessarily always the case, but some people just do not even understand what the theory is all about. He said, oh, this Woodward is talking about Genesis. I said, I'm sorry, I haven't mentioned the Bible the whole day. I mean, we could have a Bible discussion, you know, I love the Bible, but we're talking about scientific evidence. And so I think uh, that's really interesting to see even how people don't even keep up with this area. So uh, I'm going to just go ahead and mention that Darwin's ship is sinking, and I think there are at least four icebergs that are causing, not one, but four, okay? That's the Titanic, by the way, in case you're wondering what that ship is. You've heard the story of the Titanic you know, in, in that 1912, one April evening, a little bit of a disaster. And there it is, a representation of it going down. Um, so the holes below the waterline are, first of all, fossils, which we call Darwin's Dilemma. Darwin knew about the fossils in his day, trilobites, ammonites, and now today we have weird critters found in that lowest level back here in the Cambrian, in a period that goes from about 540 million down to 510 million if you accept their ages. I don't go with those ages myself, but even if someone accepts those ages, those fossils appear suddenly out of nowhere. That is not very Darwinian. They found other really weird fossils. Hallucigenia is one of them, and that's the artist's representation. That's the fossil taken out of the, the hillside in Canada, and that's the artist's representation of what it looked like. Seven pairs of spines on its back, seven pair of, pairs of wiggly ten- tentacles that it walked on. It is truly a bizarre creature that is extinct. I think I'm happy it's extinct, okay? I would hate to be uh, going through a deep forest when one of those guys was in my pathway. Okay, at least if I didn't have flip-flops on. Okay, so these animals from the Cambrian Explosion are the ultimate headache uh, for Darwin's theory. Here's the famous Anomalocaris. Normandy showed this in her uh, talk yesterday. That guy of the Cambrian Explosion had such complexity with his bulbous eyes mounted up on stalks, the two strange arms would look like little forks sticking in, and uh, a long tapered tail with little swimmer panels. And it, he even had, if I can bring up the underneath side, a round mouth underneath him that he would use for eating. And that animal, whereas most of the uh, Cambrian monsters were two or three inches long, this could grow to seven feet in length and fully grown. He was truly the king of the seas. He appears suddenly and then lives for a little bit and then just disappears. Does he change during the time? Does he evolve? No. He gets stuck in a rut. And what do we call that? Stasis. Yeah, stasis. So this is a, a tremendous problem for Darwin's theory. The Cayman explosion is not just a small explosion, it's a mega explosion. They found new weird animals in the last few years like cactus form, they call it Diana cactiformis. Isn't that a strange, bizarre kind of worm to be calling through the, the sea sediments? And we also have fossil evidence of catastrophe we have evidence that's seen throughout the world of animals, not only animals, but plants, even trees that are stuck in layer upon layer of sediment. That is what we call a polystrate tree trunk fossil. Polystrate means it passed through strata. Uh, and so that means all the strata, all the layers of, of mud and silt and sediment and sand were gathering around the trunk as it was covered. So That trunk couldn't have been there very long, right? The trunk would decay in water. If it was there for very for, for for a long time, so all those layers had to be laid down fast and catastrophically. So when you cross these horizons, these contact points between the layers of your birthday cake, as I described last yesterday, as a birthday cake stacked up, if you have those layers, those contact horizons that are penetrated by a fossil, that's evidence. As you see here in the Joggins' formation of Nova Scotia, that those fossils were laid down suddenly, okay? That tree is not going to stand at attention and say, well, okay, I'm I'm good, I'll wait about 100,000 years, maybe a million years standing at attention. No, the tree's going to decay. So when you see fossils like this, and my wife and I were able to go to Joggins' trees, we were able to actually photograph quite a few of these, and it's really spectacular what you see and that's evidence of a catastrophe. And I think we can uh, say that this is the Noahic Flood is the best explanation I see that connects this with the Bible. So, of course, there's the cosmos, which has brilliant design. Wherever you look in the universe itself, we have fantastic, brilliant design that's not just in the back, uh, in the history of the Earth, but up in the expanse of the heavens. Uh, This right here is a very powerful galaxy it's a radioactive galaxy because there's a gigantic black hole in the middle of it that is swallowing whole suns, you know, stars, and producing out very lethal rays. So stay away from, stay away from that galaxy, okay? Not good for your health, all right? But as, with that as the backdrop, I would just point out that even the great physicist, when he celebrated his 70th birthday recently, had a bash in his home, but the people that came to his party kind of ruined They kind of bashed his bash, okay? They kind of ruined his birthday because they were all kind of kidding him about the collapse of his old theory that universe has no beginning. He has this idea, well, there was no beginning. And everybody's saying, no, clearly the universe didn't have a beginning. Valenkin, another very famous scientist, said right there to his face at his birthday, okay, now, you know, glad you made it to 70. Great, great job, Stephen. You made it to... You know, even with your Lou Gehrig's disease. But you got to face all the evidence says the universe had a beginning. Uh, I don't think Stephen Hawking smiled at that one. Okay, he was not very happy. So at the, uh, at the end of the party, someone said, well, this needs to be written up. So in the next uh, month, there was a write-up in one of the famous science magazines. And it says, we have a genesis problem. Because we cannot explain the origin of the universe from nothing. Isn't that an interesting phrase? A genesis problem. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you have a Genesis problem? I don't have a Genesis problem because we accept the book of Genesis, right? And Genesis explains the the origin of the universe. God spoke and it stood fast. That's actually referring uh, to Psalm 30. So uh, Earth and all the cosmos are precisely designed. Stars need gravity balanced with electromagnetism. How carefully? One part in 10 to the 40th power. As 10 with 40 zeros after the 10. We see that even the masses, the the exact weight of the the particles of matter are fine-tuned. The location of the earth and the galaxy, the size of our moon, the exact makeup of our atmosphere, all these and many, many, many more factors are fine-tuned for you and for me to have a happy life in in the love of Jesus. Uh, I, one of my favorite is this thing called uh, the Goldilocks zone. You remember the story of Goldilocks? She was sam- sampling the porridge. One was hot, too hot, not, one was too cold. The other one was not too hot, not too cold. Say it with me. Just right, okay. So did you know that there is a Goldilocks zone around our sun? You see, if you go outside that Goldilocks zone, it's too cold. If you go inside, like where Mercury and Venus are, it's too hot. But there's a band, there's a section, which is not too hot, not too cold. It's just right. And you know where the most just right is? Right in the middle of that zone. You know where the earth sits? Right in the middle of that zone. We're just right. Let's put the earth in there. So thank you, Jesus. You made us, even though it gets a little bit hot, maybe. Rarely in the Bahamas, but up in North Pole, South Pole. A little bit too cold, you know, so you don't want to hang out there too long. Just right. So, Mark Davis, I think we can uh, um, maybe let him be heard. We have the sound turned on, so let's just hear what he has to say.
2: The fine-tuning is, fine is, is a remarkable statement that the universe is on a knife edge, it has been around for a long enough time to make us really wonder about how, it could, how one could have set up initial conditions to be so finely tuned. The expansion rate was enormously high in the early universe, and the, the energy of the expansion had to be in perfect balance with the energy of the gravitational attraction. The, the kinetic and potential energies were finely balanced to uh, amazing precision, like, for example, one part in 10 to the 60. That is uh, one with 60 zeros. So that's an, a level of precision that is crazy. Now, you're talking about if it had been faster or slower, the expansion rate by that one part in, uh, to, into the 60th power. It, the would universe had... would be completely different. The universe today, the universe would either have ended many billions of years ago, because or it would have collapsed back in on itself. It would have collapsed itself? back in on to itself, yeah. or instead the universe would be in free expansion today. And the balance between uh, the mass in the universe versus the, c- the critical value of the mass in the universe would be off by factors of, uh, of billions. So on the one side, galaxies never could have formed because they would have been dis- the whole universe was ex- dispersing too quickly. On the other side, galaxies never could have formed because they would have crunched back in on itself before it got to that stage. Well, time. certainly life would never form. Everything yeah. would be happened so quickly that it would be all over in an incredibly short time. Mm-hmm. So the universe uh, is amazingly fine-tuned. Uh, environment, and physicists are very keen to understand how it came to be this way.
1: The universe is a very amazingly fine-tuned environment, and physicists are keen to understand how it came to be that way. And earlier on when he described the expansion rate as fine-tuned, such a brilliantly exact speed, and by the way, six times in the Old Testament, three times in Isaiah and in other places, it says the Lord has stretched out the heavens. That's what God said a 1,000 years, and then again, 500 years in Zechariah, before Christ. So, what, 30 centuries ago, the Bible was saying what science has finally got around to discovering 100 years ago. Isn't that cool? Wow. Thank you, God. You're amazing. And so, uh, and then I love the word he says. This, This rate of precision is crazy. It's a very honest evaluation. This is just crazy. God is drawing our attention to himself through the things he has made. Hmm, that sounds like Romans 1.20. But men turned away from it. Men turned to their own desires, you know. And so uh, I'll just tell you, I also have a couple other things, some other icebergs that are hitting the side of this Titanic of Darwinism would be the molecular machines that are, again, made because there's a code built into the DNA, which is like a blueprint, And this code enables proteins to be made, which are like those floppy uh, informational macromolecules that twist and scrunch in upon themselves to form three-dimensional objects. Isn't that amazing? If you could have a a, a piece of spaghetti with a bunch of letters built into it, you dropped it into a hot water, uh, maybe a bubbling uh, kettle, and all of a sudden that piece of spaghetti turned into I don't know, a tube or a screwdriver uh, or a feather, okay? Or, um, you know, but well, you just name your favorite small object. You know, you have at a larger scale a baseball bat, a, a, something used to play cricket, okay? And the objects, the macromolecules are like that. Now, I, I, I once worked with a movement called Campus Crusade. You ever heard of Campus Crusade? It's called CRU. They changed their name a little over a year ago, CRU, so they avoid any problems with the Islamic countries. And I, I get that. That's fine. Whatever. So Campus Crusade, the founder, Billy, I'm to say Billy Graham. Bill Bright, a lot of great evangelists, have the first name, William. Okay. So Bill Bright had this wonderful thing called the Four Spiritual Laws. You ever heard of that? God loves you and offers you a wonderful plan for your life. Number two, man is sinful, cannot experience God's love or plan for his life. Number three, Christ died for your sins and was raised from the, get, from the dead. He's, a, he's alive to offer that plan. Number four, you must receive him by faith. You must repent and receive Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and then you can experience that love. So I used to you know, use that four spiritual laws at a, at a community college in Dallas and other places after that, there's like 12 trillion of them in print you know, here and there around the world in hundreds of languages at this point. And a lady who had uh, been involved with that same movement in our, in our area, uh, and she was in our wedding. She was the matron of honor. Her name is Mary. She's now retired uh, from active life, uh, having some health challenges. But when she was at her prime uh, and her son was in high school, uh, she was actively witnessing and looking for every opportunity. Now. I didn't know that my little DNA talk at her church would actually play a role in the story I'll share. It's a one-minute story, okay? We came back from the Dominican Republic. This is in 1988. I had just begun, I was just about to begin my teaching at Trinity. And so the Lord gave me an opportunity to do a Wednesday night talk and almost all the people at their church, as I talked about information macromolecules, were nodding off. They were enjoying their, their, you know, they were bobbing for apples, as we say, at Halloween. Okay, okay, I've done that myself. Um, but um, Mary was taking notes, and I said the same thing. Three informational macromolecules, long string molecules. They carry information along their spine. No, you know, nothing in nature can can explain that. So she was taking notes. She didn't fall asleep. A year later, I'm, I'm walking to my class, and she says... Uh, through a phone uh, note and I called her up and I said, right when I got out of class, I said, what's the matter, is everything okay? She said, said, call me in the note. I said, she said, no, everything's good. I just gotta tell you what happened that when I went to pick up John, that's her high school son, for his doctor's appointment, I was waiting in the lobby and two students were sitting and they were razzing and, and joking about creation and praising Charles Darwin and saying how they could reject God now. There was nothing you know in creation that you could believe in anymore she said i was really upset and she said i prayed well god what would you have me to do and i remembered i took notes when you were here in town and i thought i might be having my purse so she dug down found her notes reviewed them real quickly she said i slid down where i could see those boys and she didn't bump into anything like this so but she slid down where she could see the boys. she said I asked them, hi, I just overheard you talking about creation evolution. Have you heard about the informational macromolecules? And they said, the what? And she said, yes, DNA, you may have heard about that. And they said, yeah, we're studying DNA. And she said, have you ever heard about RNA? Yeah, we just studied that too. You know about proteins? Yeah, there's three, DNA makes RNA makes proteins. She said, they're all informational mac- macromolecules. Macromolecule means long string like a a piece of spaghetti that goes hundreds of miles. And informational means there's embedded letters that are in a precise code. They said, wow, we've never heard about this. And she said, you know, that is a a mystery because there's no force in nature that can organize those letters in a precise array. And so therefore we have direct evidence of a creator in those molecules. And they said, oh my goodness, this is really important. We didn't know anything about this. And she said, yeah, would you like to also hear about how you can, have you ever heard of the four spiritual laws? And they said, no. She said, can I share them with you? And they said, sure. So she took out her little four spiritual laws pamphlet that she had.